This is the Business and Leadership Podcast with Jared Graybeal. Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. Your host, Jared Graybeal. And once again, uh, we have another interview episode. And on this episode, I'm super excited to introduce Ike Ubasaneke. Ike is one of my best friends. Um, and uh, he is in the group. If you listen to the episode with Sergio Cavan, he's in our quote unquote mastermind group. Um, and uh, I, I really wanted to bring Ike on to talk about current events um, because Ike is uh, not only a leader, but he's a black leader and he has a lot more perspective on everything going on right now. And we've had a lot of great conversations the past two weeks. Um, and I've gained a ton of empathy personally, but more importantly, perspective and empathy. Um, and so I want to talk about leadership and how that should look and how that should change moving forward. Um, so I currently is the director of leader development at Booster Enterprise, which is a for-profit fundraising solution for uh, schools. And he also owns We Inspire, where he's a leadership coach. Ike, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. It's great to have you. That was such a long intro to bring on a good <laughs> friend. Um, but man, yeah, dude, I'm so glad to have you on the show. And like we talked about a minute ago, at the beginning of this year, I wrote your name down um, as a potential guest. And you know, I knew that at some point you and I could talk about leadership and we could talk about business on the show. Um, but I don't think there's a better time than now. Um, so, uh, so I'm really just, I I think more than ever, this show will be a little different where you'll talk hopefully 90% and I'll just listen and ask questions. And for the audience, that's what I hope they would do the same. And, um, so we'll, we'll kind of dive right in. Uh, I, if you could, man, just to give full context, like what's your story? Um, where were you born? Kind of give us the fast track of like where you grew up, high school, college, and what brought you to where you are today at Booster. Yeah, that's great. So I was born in Michigan. Uh, parents are both Nigerian. So they came to the United States in the 70s. Dad got a full ride to U of M, engineer. So I, I was born in Michigan, um, lived there until about seven years old. Then um, my dad's job transferred him to Louisiana. And so um, I moved to Louisiana. I went to kind of finish up elementary school, went to middle school and high school there, Louisiana. So moving from the north to the south was so different. Um, At least I think, I mean, I, I see, I feel like part of it was like I was younger. So things change as you move into middle school, but it was still very, very different. Um, different conversations, different, it was just different. So lived in Louisiana. And then, um, I really wrestled back and forth. I I gave my life to the Lord. My dad gave his life to the Lord at a younger age or when I was younger and he had a radical transformation. So that had a big impact on my family. Um, and he was just by listening cassette tapes, someone led led him to the Lord at work and just things started shifting, which was very helpful. I mean, I was having prayer meetings every Saturday morning, just things changed. We changed church. We were going to Catholic church. So things shifted. And um, throughout the process in um, middle school, I think it was eighth grade, sixth grade, I gave my life to the Lord. But there was like this really strong commitment in eighth grade, ninth grade time frame. And 
I started wrestling with, hey, what do I want to do? Um, I always had this heart for ministry, but didn't know how to look. Really involved my youth group in high school. And so I made a decision, hey, I really want to go to ministry. My parents um, really pushed against that. And it was the sense of, hey, there is, I'm just going to be transparent. Like, there is a sense, hey, if you go into ministry, you're not going to be able to support yourselves. But many times my parents also said, hey, it is different for you as a black person. And if you think you're just going to make it because you're talented, you got something else coming for you. So you need to make sure that you go ahead. We want you to do ministry, but have a backup plan because it's not going to be the same for you. I didn't really want to hear it then. I didn't want to hear any of that, but I wrestled with that for a while. So going into college, I've made a decision. I was like, all right, for a year, I'm going to go to um, school. Got Went to university of, university of New Orleans. So, you know, and um, it's a school in city, in the city. And I was there and didn't really want to be there, but I was really blessed. My parents, they just wanted me. They're like, we want you to make it. They pay for my condo when I was there. They helped me through school. It was just like this big shit, but I didn't really fully want to be there. While I was there, I, um, skipping over parts, but this is an overview. I was, I got involved with a ministry called Crew Nava's Campus Crusade for Christ. And in that, I just fell more in love with serving God in ministry. So I was there for a semester, went home. My parents was like, look, I want to switch. I want to leave. I want to go to, I want to do full-time ministry. At that time, I didn't want to go to school for it. I just wanted to transition to ministry. And they're like, no, you need to stay here. Stay in engineering. Trust me, you need to be here. You can do ministry after you finish that. I wasn't hearing it. I thought I knew it all. And then I, again, transitioned um, after the second semester. I said, no, I really want to do this. And they said, if you want to do this, you need to go be prepared for it. So I was like, all right, I'll be prepared for it. Which, and they said, if, you, if you're going to be prepared for it, we want you to go to a good school. So I went from Louisiana to Alabama. So the school I went to, Southeastern Bible College, was in Alabama. And that was where I went to school. Long history there. Either way, I found a ministry that I was a part of that started, not at the school, but a friend told me, hey, you need to check it out. And I said, I'll check it out. And went to that ministry. It was, it was just really a Bible study at the time. There's maybe when I went like eight people. Um, but... I was like, this is awesome. I felt the love. And then I was a part of that all through college. And then I served the ministry after I graduated. So the ministry just grew exponentially. It's kind of one of those, it was a phenomenon in a way, um, you know, from eight people to like, we were meeting weekly with 4,000 plus coming every week. And so I was a part of this going through uh, college. And so when I graduated, I had an opportunity to do, be a part of this prayer movement that I was serving with. Um, as an internship, or I can go work with this ministry. And I decided to go work with the ministry, serve with the ministry for multiple years. Um, some craziness happened in the ministry, some scandals. I probably felt the most weight um, that I felt in, a, in my life up until that point of wrestling through hearing our names in the media, in the news, news people coming to our place, trying to ask us questions. It was just like a coming to our house, banging on the door. It was like this weird, the weirdest thing I've ever experienced and very, very challenging. But from there, I um, remember going home, my parents said, I don't know what I need to do. I'm really How old were you at this here, point? but what I do? What's that? How old were you at this point when you went back home to your parents? Okay, so 
after I graduated high school, graduated college, I went to serve this ministry. And so at this point, I was there from all the way from 2008 all the way to 2013. Gotcha. So this conversation was in 2013. All right. I don't know what I need to do. Um, long story of the whole transition to that. But 2013, went to my parents and we prayed together and I made decisions. All right, I'm going to leave Birmingham and I'm going to go to um, seminary. So I went to Bible college already. Let me go to seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary. And that was my decision. The hardest, when I, when I talk to people about leaving well, um, I get it because it was the hardest transition I've ever made in my life to leave somewhere and try to leave well. And it was, it was so hard, so hard and so challenging. So left there, moved to Houston. My sister lives in Houston. I didn't know a soul. It was a really um, earth shaking time for me because I went from having, I felt like influence all this stuff to I'm in a new city. No one knows me, new place. Don't really feel comfortable talking about what I was a part of because they search it. They're going to see arrests and all these things with some ministry leaders. So I was just like, I have nothing. And that was a cool moment for me because that's when Jesus showed me like he's enough. And it's one thing to say that, but the believing of that was transformative for me. So I just went into this like really fun season of just getting to know the Lord more. I was just like studying his word, worshiping. I was by myself a lot of time and I didn't even really care. I was so happy. And it was just, I was reconnecting with friends and realizing influence was bigger than just a platform. Like I can literally call people up and have influence in their life. And I was like, this is incredible. Everybody could do this. So that was transformative. I was a part of that. I joined Booster soon after when I moved to Houston. First, I was in training. I transitioned to um, Booster. And so Booster, I was there just kind of serving the field. I started part-time, then became full-time. And then after about a year and a half, almost two years, um, I was told about a job, leader development associate. They're like, hey, you should try this out. Um, I text a lot of my friends. I said, hey, what do you think? They're like, this is perfect for you. So that was my transition from there to Atlanta. And then I went from leader development associate to specialist um, to manager to now I'm director. So that's my journey from (laughs) early childhood all the way till now. Very fast, a lot of gas, but at least now you're in Atlanta. And how long have you been in Atlanta? So I've been in Atlanta from 2016, May 2016, till now. Gotcha. So over four years. So you've spent the majority of your life in the South. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. Michigan, but you know you were not left there. The deep South, not just the South, the deep South. Yeah, Houston was a little different, but. Alabama and um, Alabama, Louisiana were a lot of my life, and that is the deep south for sure. Yeah. So if you had to sum up your experience as a black leader in the deep south with one word, <laughs> what would it be? Um, I would say one word's hard. I would say the first word that came to mind is heavy. I think what I what I mean by that is well, maybe effort. Gosh, the, the amount of energy and effort you have to put in just to get noticed is is a lot. Um, so it's almost like you have to be somewhat blameless <laughs> to really be able to get noticed. And so a lot of for a lot of 
black leaders or black people in general, I'll speak for myself. I can't speak for all black people, but for myself coming from, and this is some black people coming from parents who worked really, really hard, um, you know, got to the place that they are today and really try to instill in their kids values. There's a lot of black families who have done that. Still values that will help them excel in the future. Um, especially Nigerian families. That's kind of like what they do um, from a young age with their kids because they came here out from here and they knew like my dad, he, he wouldn't be able to make it if he didn't make it through school. Like this was his only option. There was no plan B, right? He had nothing else to fall on. So this was his shot to really be able to make it. Um, so I would say the challenge is we, we a lot of times on the front end try so hard to prove ourselves to get a shot. So it's not like you walk in, all right, it's more of like, I'm like front loading, like here's this and this and this and this and make sure that I'm dressed well and the way I speak comes across well and all of those things just to get my foot in the door. And then once you get your foot in the door, you're putting more work and energy to show that you really have something great to offer. And it doesn't mean you're perfect, but it's like I've had multiple times where a mistake was used against me of like, I don't know if you're the right fit. Um, and so it's just, it's just, it's exhausting. But these are things that naturally you just know you have to do. Um, you know you're going to have to work harder just to get noticed. And that's just what you, that's what I've been taught to do. And it doesn't mean it's right, but it, you just kind of learn to, to live with that. So effort is what I would say is a, is a word. Now, um, now I got, you and I have talked about some of your experiences, but you know, this black lives matter movement, which was around before George Floyd was murdered. Um, but it's sort of reawoken, uh, in a, in a big way, um, in the best way. And I know that it's sort of reopened some wounds of yours. So prior to everything going on right now, like when was the last time you thought about racism? Like, was it something you thought about every day? You just hide it or like, what was, what's that like? Like, you know, people have asked me this. I've, I think about racism every day. Um, and it's not like this. I wonder if I'm going to run into a racist person. It's more of, hey, I know I'm a black man. I need to make sure I don't make any sudden movements when I'm going into the grocery store or when I'm going into the gas station. Like, those are thoughts that come to my mind. Like, okay, I'm behind this couple at night. I need to make sure I step back a little bit more because I don't want to make them nervous. It's just these are things that you – from encounters when you're young, you're trying to use wisdom as you get older to not make certain decisions that will, could get you in a predicament, um, you know, that you don't want to be in. So, you know, I've been in, in store with my mom before and been a, accused of stealing, like, as we're walking out and having my mom to defend me because they saw me pick something up <laughs> and they thought I put it in my pocket. So, there, things like that were a little bit more normal. And so you just learn to, hey, hey, if I go in a gas station, it's like every black man knows you don't put your hood up. Like you are going to feel threatening if you put your hood up. Um, and that could go for everybody. But the, the reality is when you're experiencing this all the time, every day, and it's a part of it, it just gets really difficult to, to wrestle with. So, yeah, that's what I would say. 
Yeah. Wow. It's, it's a conditioning, you know, um, you've, and it's, when you said that it reminds me of me as a young man or a young boy, um, when I was a criminal and that breaks my heart that like every day of your life, you have to worry about being looked at as a criminal potentially. Like, and I say that because there was a period of time from, I don't know, like 12 to 18 years old in my life where I was breaking all the rules and maybe I'd have weed on me all the time or a firearm or something. And so I would purposely not have my hood up or because I would not walk too close to certain people. Right. And I wouldn't do it. I'm a white guy. So I didn't do it because of racism. I did it because I'm actually doing something wrong. You know what I mean? Um, and I didn't want to get caught. So I didn't want to air any suspicion or get any attention. And so when you say that, it just reminds me of what I used to do when I was actually scared of getting in trouble because I was probably doing something wrong. And you live every day like that, not doing anything wrong. It blows my mind and I'm sorry. Um, you mentioned something the other day uh, about being at the gym. Can you tell that story again a little bit? I'm trying to remember what story. Um, what did I say around the gym? You, <laughs> for everybody listening, Ike wakes up at, I don't know, two in the morning um, to start his day, three in, three a.m., and you were at the gym, like, right when Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, and, and this, is, this has happened to me a lot because, one, with my job, I when we were doing like events, we would get to school really, really early. Um, but also I, I wake up really early. And one thing that I do, um, I'm either reading or I reflect in the morning. So sometimes I'm like, let me just go to where I'm going to be at. And then I'll just, um, I'll reflect there and process there. And then I'll go into where I'm going into. So maybe the gym. And yeah, I was, I was telling y'all a story of, you know, going to the gym and a cop, um, coming behind me and pulling me over, or not pulling me over, but they're coming behind me, came up to one window, sir, what are you doing? What are you doing? I was like, I'm waiting for the gym to open. No one's in here yet. No one's in here. It's 445. What are you doing? I was like, I'm, I'm waiting for the gym to open up. Yeah, I just got here a little earlier. Um, can you turn your light on your car? It was just like this interrogation of, I wish it, would, it was like, hey, what are you doing, sir? Oh, waiting for the gym. Oh, okay. But it's like, there's so much extra to it, and that's normal. That's happening when I've been in schools. That's happened to me multiple times of just pulled over or, you know, seeing somewhere and asking what I'm doing. Um, that's happened to me in my neighborhood. <laughs> like, uh, one when I live with my sister and, uh, like, pulled over, like, in front of the house, but I don't have really good reception in the house. So, like... When I'm, if I'm on the phone, I'll just like wait somewhere. Have you ever had that happen to you? Like you don't go fully in because you yeah. know, like you're going to get cut off. So I will wait out there, but I've been like cops thinking, Hey, what are you doing in front of this house? And I'm like, I live here, <laughs> you know? And so it's stuff like that where you get used to, but it's not, even though you might get used to it. And I think this is one of the issues today. Like people are hearing stuff going on or like black lives matter and some people are having a hard time with it and they're like almost like thinking then why haven't you said something and it's almost like 
you eventually learn how to deal with it. I remember when Black Lives Matter came out, it was just, people were destroying it. They were like, I mean, they were not even having it. I mean, now it's being seen as something to celebrate, but in the past, it was even, even among friends, even among people I work with, they're like, Ike, this is the stupidest thing out there. And in my mind, I'm just like, what do I even do with this? Like, I'm, I'm like agreeing, like, man, I do want my life to matter more, but people are like quickly just downgrading it. And so it leaves you in this place of like, how do I even raise my voice? And then you start getting nervous. You start getting scared. So you, people are speaking out more than ever because they feel so empowered to. And like, man, I can finally let my voice be heard. It's not saying that I'm better. I was watching something today and someone was like, it's not like saying black lives are better. <laughs> it's just like, we just want to matter and feel like we're just the same. And yeah. even still, people are pushing other things and other agenda. But what about this? Or all lives do matter and this and that. And it's like, right. we just want to say, we want a seat at the table. We don't want just a seat, a be in the room. We want a seat at the table. And there's a big difference. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I'm... <sighs> I'm still so blown up. You know, I want to kind of touch on that, that topic we had a couple of seconds ago. I can't take my mind off of it um, because there's times over the past, you know, because you know my story. I was in jail for a little while and then I was on house arrest for a long time. So deservingly so, I did my time. And um, and then when I finished all that, I've passed, I don't know, 11 years, I've had this sigh of relief. Like when I see cops when I'm driving, I almost in my mind, I'm like, thank God I don't have to worry about them anymore. Cause I, every day I was in fear of the police, you know, cause I was a criminal though. You know what I mean? Not because of my skin. And, um, it's got me jacked up just thinking about it, living every day of my life as if I was still a criminal. You know what I mean? Like I, I think oftentimes like, thank God I'm not worried about be, like they're caught behind me. Like it doesn't bother me these days. You know what I mean? But it used to freak me out when I was, I was a kid, you know, if a cop was behind me. So, um, gosh, man, I, it's definitely something to consider, uh, for, for anybody, but I just wanted to say that. And then I want to touch on this black lives matter, all lives matter thing, because I've, and we talked about this the other day, um, but I have closed mindedly been there, right? Like where, when I heard Black Lives Matter, and this is early on, not the past couple weeks, but like when it first came out, I would think, well, don't all lives matter? And yes, and we've talked about this, but white lives have always mattered. So that's why it has to specifically be Black Lives Matter. And we talked about this illustration, right? Like if a, if a house in the neighborhood is on fire and the firefighters come to the neighborhood and everyone's pointing at the house that's on fire. And then one of the neighbors is like, well, what about my house? And it's like, your house is not on fire. Like we got to put the house out that's on fire. This house matters. You know what I mean? Um, and then I, I, I think I sent you a picture maybe or, or something on Instagram. And it was like, um, it was a cartoon, but it was somebody with like a broken arm and somebody else was like, Hey, go, go get an, an ambulance or go, get a doctor and the person that they're pointing to was like, well, what about my arm? And like, your arm isn't broken. <laughs> you don't need a doctor. Um, and I, for me, illustrations help a lot because when I first heard that firefighter refer the, you know, the house on fire reference, I was like, 
I'm feel convicted, right? Because I was one of the people to be like, well, don't all lives matter? I don't understand, you know? Um, and so I think, I think people of all races, but specifically white people need to take a moment to think about that. Like growing up, I mean, it's not like I had any level of, I wasn't raised wealthy and I didn't, wasn't given a ton, but I had a, a, a intangible advantage, you know, nothing I could put my hands on, right? Like I didn't get money to go to college. I got a scholarship because I got good grades and all that stuff, but I got, you know, I have a ton of opportunities that were just handed to me because of what's being considered as white privilege. And it doesn't mean I got like a car at 16 or something. It just means that because I'm white, I didn't have to worry about all the things that you worry about. And so I'm really big on advocating the difference between all lives matter and black lives matter. So for the audience, I just hope that they listen to that and, and take, take that into consideration. Um, now I can, your experience, like from your childhood to now, what's one of the greatest obstacles that you've had to overcome to get to where you are today? Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably similar to that. It's just, um, I have to prove myself. Um, I have the energy you put into proving yourself is real. Um, and it's, it's it could be hard. Um, I give an example I'll give is, um, and then also like to show your worth as well. It's like, it's gotta be tip top. I remember I was applying out, I won't say the name of the, <laughs> of the organization, but it was my high school year going into college and it was engineering. And, um, though I didn't fully want to do engineering, I was still sharp at it. Um, and so there was this leadership program, always wanted do leadership and be a leader. And so I was like big on that, even graduating high school. And um, I went to this interview. I practice, I practice and practice. I was ready for it. I felt good about it. Um, came down to me and this other person and didn't get it. And then when I followed up, I really want to follow up. Like, um, I didn't know what feedback was back then, but I really wanted to know, like, yeah. what could I do? And the response has stuck with me even to this day, uh, because the response was, we just, we just didn't know if you would want to be here long-term. I'm like, did I say I didn't want to be here long-term? Did I, you know, it, it's like the thought, the thought of even being better than someone in that situation, I don't know for sure, but even in life, in situations where you are the best choice and you are the best one to bring change, it's still not enough to get in that position. What do you think they were really saying to you? Like, what do you think they meant by that? I don't know. But I think the idea is they they were making assumptions on things that weren't even clear, right? This is an internship. Like, did I say that? Am I, am I thinking about this next year or anything like that? I'm just excited about this, but for whatever reason, and I, I'm not going to put words in their mouth, they're utilizing that in a way to validate their decision yeah. when that wasn't even my thought process. Because the only reason why you need to validate something is if you're having a hard time picking between people. Yeah. And the hard time, whatever the hard, hard thing was, they were using the validation of, well, we don't know if he would be here um, long-term or be a fit here long-term. And for me, that hurts. And then I find out the person who does get it, I'm like, it hurts even more. 
And so it's just like, it's just a, it's a challenge that I think people don't realize. And that's what I'm talking about a seat at the table. Um, and I, yes, this goes deeper. Systemic race is deeper, but I might even have to do a post on this. Like, I just want, I always like picturing a table, right? There are people who can be in the room, but it's totally different. Like if you think about board meeting, if you have a seat at the table, that means you walk into that room and you're at the table, you automatically have value and you automatically can be just as better as a candidate as somebody else. Your voice is just as important as somebody else's. And so if you come in and you're really your foot's in the door and you're creeping in like, hey, y'all, then they're not going to see you as valuable. And so how do you get to the place where you're like, you're at the table? It does take conversations. It does take networking. It does take connection. Um, and I, some people are not willing to do that. Some people are not willing to break out of their network, their mold. It's comfortable. It feels good. Even if the people who are on the outside that they're not necessarily giving a seat at the table can have a big impact on their organization um, or their business or so on and so forth. So that's a challenge and that's a struggle that we wrestle with. Like, what will it take to have a, a seat at the table to really allow our voices to be heard? So, yeah, that's why when we say Black Lives Matter, it's hard and it's taken a lot of, it's bringing up a lot of wounds because we've experienced a life where it feels like we don't matter as much. And as much as people will say, well, you do matter. Well, when I look at all the boards and I look at all these, the, the functions and the systems in the world, I'm like, if we did matter, if we did have a seat at the table, you would see way more of us. Because yeah. I'm seeing a lot of talented black people who are in positions, I'm like, they could be doing way more than this right now. And that, that brings me to my next question. Um, you and I talked about, again, the other day, uh, gosh, we've talked about this so much, but it's like my mind is... Um, just racing. Uh, so, you know, the pandemic probably pushed us forward 10, 15 years in terms of the digital era. Um, but this movement and, um, unfortunately George Floyd, Floyd losing his life has probably pushed us a hundred years, um, ahead in terms of the potential for systemic justice and equality, um, in all areas of life, uh, in the workplace and leadership opportunities, scholarships, schools, homes. Um, what are you most excited about when you think about the future, you know, and how much has changed already in the past couple of weeks and how much can change? I'm excited for people to see more people of color, what they have to offer. I think they have things to offer that are unique. And at first, they're going to feel different and uncomfortable. But I think as a nation, as a world, it's going to make us all better. And so that's a part of the thing I'm the most excited about. It's like, oh, my goodness, I'll picture people in my mind. I'm like, I cannot wait for more leaders to see Cam. Like, Cam's a friend of mine. I'm like, this guy, he's got it. He has got it. If they would just give him a chance if they would just start him like they do their other friends, white counterparts, I promise you he's going to make a big impact. So I think of things like that and I start thinking about names and people in my life, like my sister and my brother and just other people I know. I'm just like, I can't wait for more and more people to get the opportunity to see this person um, just 
leading in the capacity I know they can and influencing their community like I know they can. Um, that's what I get excited about is more black people exposed, more yep. people of color exposed for who they really are. And people appreciate that more and more. Um, so, I mean, I said this the other day, it's like, it's the feeling of, I think I put this in the post, the feeling of people wanting you for your gift and talents, but not necessarily wanting you is a really hard pill to swallow. And a lot of black men and women go through that um, story. My dad told me the other day, my uncle, who um, there was this area of his business where it was going down and he asked if he could take it over, took it over two years. He built it up towards the most profitable in the company. They call him an office. Great job. They took it away from him, gave it to a white person. It's like that type of mentality of you have someone who has ability to turn the lowest, the lowest profitable thing in your company and raise it to the top. And your, your response is like, Hey, let's just put them in another low performing thing. And it's like, you want someone's talents and gifts, but you don't necessarily want them instead of saying, let's put this person in a position of power, because obviously they know how to work things in our business that can really be a game changer for us. It's more of, well, let's put them in another lower producing area and see if they can bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, all I can think about in relation to that is, you know, when I was sort of crawling my way out of my criminal history and it's like, I would have these talents and abilities and the skill and education. Um, but people wouldn't want me because of my background. And it's like to be treated that way just because of the color of your skin is atrocious. Uh, and it's crazy we've taken so long to address this, but um, you uh, you talked about diversity and being most excited about you know more black people having a seat at the table, and it makes me think about our group, right? Like the four of us: uh, you, me, Serge, who is Puerto Rican, and Alex, who is uh, Iranian predominantly but he's from france and i wouldn't be who i am i've got a handful of other friends obviously but i wouldn't be who i am without this diverse leadership at my table you know what i mean you guys are sort of my my board of directors you know i filter a lot of stuff through you guys and it's been that way my whole life because i was raised just probably a lot different than most white people and so it's contributed to who I am. It's contributed to my thought process. And, you know, we always tell people you should travel and get cultured and experience diversity, but we don't say you should bring those people to your board. And that's ridiculous, right? Like, um, so I'm equally excited because, you know, if we don't have different people leading the organizations, people from different backgrounds, different upbringings, different races, even different genders, especially. Um, yeah then we'll always be one track minded and it's going to limit our growth, whether it's for small businesses or fortune 500 companies. Um, and the percentage of black leaders in fortune 500 companies is embarrassing. Um, and I think we'll see that change. Uh, probably not tomorrow. Cause I don't think like all the white people should just get fired. You know what I mean? Like, but if they suck, then they, they should be on the chopping block. But anyways, um, so, in your opinion, 
despite race, what makes a good leader to you? Like what are one or two main characteristics of a good leader? Um, I think through a framework, when I think about leadership, um, I'll try to use the easiest terminology, but like, uh, knowing yourself, lean yourself, knowing others and lean others. And so I think some qualities, characteristics, even attributes that I feel help in those areas. Like when it comes to knowing yourself, uh, just this idea of reflection, I think great leaders reflect when it comes to leading yourself, I think, uh, growth minded, um, in order to lead yourself, you need to be growth minded. Um, knowing others, I would say empathy. Um, that's really big. And then with leading others, empowerment. Um, so reflection, growth minded, empathy, and empowerment are just some characteristics that, um, if leaders know how to empower, empower people, know how to show empathy, know how to have a growth mindset and um, know how to reflect well, then I think they're, they're going to lead well. That's good. Who do you think um, is someone who's a white leader right now leading really well through the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, like who's responded really well, that you would say? I think it's a little too early um, to tell. I will say, yeah, because I, there needs to be a little bit more time. I need some more. <laughs> give, give. I think people are responding. Yeah. Yeah. People are responding, which is good. Um, I've noticed some things. I, I'll even speak from CEO Booster. I've noticed um, a couple things. Humble posture is big. Um, all the leaders who are just humble um, has been really good. It doesn't. I've talked to leaders from bigger organizations, even smaller. And there's one thing that I've noticed with people not moving forward. They're still in this place where they feel they need to justify. Like, I know, but we are doing something. We are getting better. And I'm like, <laughs> you're kind of missing the point right now. We need you to humble yourself and learn and not try to put your input, not try to put this subtle, like, all the good things that you are doing. No one cares about that. And right now, black people are more sensitive than they ever have been. So they can, they can see that a mile away. <laughs> All they want to do is like, listen, admit where you're at and listen. Listen for a while. And then another thing I'm seeing is though people are listening, that's not enough. I'm seeing, like my CEO did as well, is they find the, even the minute ways they can take action. Like, here's a book I'm reading. Here's what I'm going after this. Pursuing conversations. Like, you got to be able to take action in the ways you know um, how to do now. And then eventually it will build off of each other. Um, but I'm, I'm not in a lot of black people, as I've been talking to people, they're not impressed with the, like I was, I think I told you earlier, black people are like profits right now. And the reason why I'm saying that is because you can almost just see the trend. I've, I heard three weeks back from different Black people in my life are saying, this is what we need to see, okay? And then people will see that, and everyone's like, yeah, that's awesome. I'm like, I've been hearing people talk about that. Black people, this is their experience, so it's almost like they can give the trend of where the market's going to go because these are things that they've been wanting for years. And so right now, though this week I've been hearing some people are excited, like, oh, I'm so excited that this person's posting this and all that. You talk to a black person, or like, we want to see your board change, 
Like, they're past that. They're like, this should have happened years ago. Like, we would have been excited with you if this happened years ago. Now, we need that quick movement. And yeah. we want to see your board change. So you can almost see the shift. Like, if those things start happening, it might take six months. You're going to see a big change in how people start moving towards those things. And Black people are just aware of it more because it's what they've thought about so much in their life. And so if I was a white leader, I would be get make sure I have black people in my circle and I would be listening to the comments that they're saying through social media to understand what they're feeling and thinking, because that is what's going to allow me to take some of that to leverage in my business or whatever I'm doing in the future so that I can be ahead of the curve for where things are moving. That's really good. If you were to think of like a business, when I say who's responded well, is there a business that comes to mind? So I, so I will say I, Chipotle comes to my mind right now. And I think they did a good job. One thing I've seen with businesses that have done well, I think Target did pretty good with this. But I think some of the things I've noticed is that people were very clear. There was no mixed language, like, we just support the people of color. It was very, like, in light of um, George Floyd and the death and what this has done in our nation. Here's what we're going to do in response to saying that Black Lives Matter. It was like, there was no gray, like, dancing around what's happening and we support people of color and we're, we're really leaning in to see, no, 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 it was like clear and specific, meaning that the reason why that's so important and this is why I appreciate this leadership is because business owners, business leaders have made a decision that we know we're going to offend people, but we're going to do it anyway. Like that's the type of leadership that's needed right now is that we know people are not going to like this, but you're not trying to please them. You're not trying to please everybody. You're trying to stand for something that's right. Yeah. And those are the leaders I've seen. So like Chipotle did that really well. I think Chick-fil-A's was okay. I was, I was like, it's pretty good. Um, you know, people donate, even Nike. I know people have a lot of issues around like, I'll just say this for one issue. People bring up another. Well, Nike, what about all the, Okay. I get it. I, I understand. But it also shows it devalues us in a big way when once we're really making traction and Nike's donating, I think it was nine million towards this, whatever, we're getting traction in certain ways, but people are almost devaluing it by trying to draw it to another direction. And that is very, very frustrating. It's like, man, I'm so thankful for this. And then someone comes along, yeah, but what about this? Like, you're supporting this, but you're not supporting this. Here's something else that you're doing. And it's like, can we just can we just matter enough for a moment for you're excited that these things are shifting? Yeah. Did we always have to turn it to something else so quickly? Like, can we just take a moment to be like, man, I'm th like, even if a person who wasn't fully on board, like, hey, I know this is needed. So I'm glad these companies, I know they all have other things they got to work on as well. They're not perfect. But man, I'm glad they're addressing this issue. Sometimes people are having struggle even saying that. Yeah. What, what's your advice for white leaders right now who are sort of tiptoeing? Because like you, you mentioned earlier, black people are really sensitive right now. And, you know, we, we as in white people ha have to be 
strategic. We have to be empathetic, but we have to be careful. Um, and a lot of white people aren't doing or saying anything because they're like, well, I don't know what to do without getting in trouble. You know what I mean? Um, what's your advice for, for people like that right now? Yeah, that's good. I, I, I think it's, first I would say if you have black friends, you should feel a little bit better about this. Um, even depending on the level of your friendship, it doesn't even really matter. If you have black people in your life, you should feel okay with making mistakes. Um, Jared, you, you've said some stuff that you didn't even know. It wasn't that it was offensive. It was just so heavy for me to take in. I didn't even know how to take it in. But I think more black people are, some people may respond differently, but black people are just adjusting just like every white person is as well. So I think we know that this is, it takes empathy on our part as well. I would say hopefully black people know it takes empathy on our part as well um, to just really say, hey, we get it. We know that this is new and you're trying to, to learn. Um, so we're not going to jump down you just because jump down your throat, just because you said this, that it was offensive or you said this and you weren't re- thinking about my feelings. Like we get it. We're just, we're glad you're trying. So I would say on that sense, like it's better to step fully in than not say anything at all. Like it is way better. I'm still frustrated with my friends who have not said anything. They'll like my post, but they won't say anything publicly. I'm, I'm so confused by it. I'm still wrestling through how do I approach them. So I would say better say something than nothing at all. And if you don't have any black friends, I would say the action step you need to take is, listen, if you don't like reading, there's a lot of documentaries. And there's a lot of uh, uh, movies on Netflix and Amazon Prime. Like Amazon Prime has a whole section dedicated to it. If you don't like, just watch those. You'll get a lot of perspective through that. And so... It's almost like you don't really have an excuse. And once you get perspective, speak on it. And let's say you don't have any black friends. Well, you have white friends that will listen to you. And so it'll give you give them the perspective. But people not responding it to it, it's just telling me they don't have the courage. And they're they're scared, which I get it. I mean, that's in leadership, right? There's moments where you're gonna do things and you're scared to do it. I was scared to post yesterday because I felt the emotion of like. I'm putting myself out there. I don't know how people are going to take it, but at the same time, it's just, it's a part of it and you got to step in. So yeah, I'll just say make mistakes. There is grace. The, the challenge would be if you make a mistake and people call you out, will you give up then? Will you just say, well, I tried. No, no, no. That's not, that's not the attitude of a leader. A leader is saying, I might've not done this well. I might not approach this the right way, but I'm going to keep going and keep trying. Yeah. And then as you keep trying, you'll start to see that you get better and um, have more quality conversations with people. Yeah. And of course, acknowledge your failures and apologize yeah. early before you move on. Um, that won't help you if you don't acknowledge it. Um, and I'll, I'll say this. Uh, if you are a white person, like you mentioned, Ike, it's time to reach out to your black friends. If you don't have black friends, it's time to expand your circle. But if you are a white person you have to have conversations with your white friends about this too. Um, see where they're at. Um, because for example, I have the luxury of having you, I mean, you're one of my best friends. You're not just a friend, you know what I mean? And so I'm lucky when all this is, is really taking place to just be able to call you and be like, I, I'm thinking about this. I'm tiptoeing. What do you think? And you're like, Jerry, you just need to, you just need to take action. You just need to, you need to speak up, da da da, and 
So now I have the ability to leverage that with my white friends that may not have an Ike in their circle. So for, for the white people listening, like this is a conversation that you need to have with people. I mean, I had this conversation with, uh, it's going to make me sound real bougie, but I have a lady that cleans my house. Um, she's super affordable and she's great. And uh, I don't personally like dusting and all that stuff. And she, she's white. And so she brought it up the other day and I thought, I need to have this conversation. You know what I mean? I don't need to brush this off. She said, what do you think about what's going on? And I thought, I have no idea which direction she's going with this right now. You know what I mean? Because this does just us two white two people in a room. You know, like, I have no idea. So I said, I think it's horrific. And I'm excited for the Black Lives Matter movement. And so we got to have this conversation. And I got to open her eyes to some stuff because I could tell from her response that she did not have probably in a black, any black people in her circle. So I got to say, can you imagine X, Y, and Z? And she's like, you know, I, I did not think about it like that. And I, so I got to see that happen. And I think that's important for white people to do with their white friends. Um, anyways, I'll get off my high horse because I certainly don't belong on one, but I'm going to round off a couple more questions and then we'll, uh, we'll close this off. But real quick, I, what do you think about everything going on with, defunding the police like what are your thoughts on that yeah i don't you know i probably am not even the best person to ask that i've i've wrestled with that because i have uh, um i have police officers that are really close friends and so i've i've wrestled with that just as much as them i would say that there is an issue there is definitely an issue and my friends are who are officers know there's an issue. So this isn't like, uh, <laughs> you know, when people say, man, not all police are bad. I think the biggest challenge and what a lot of my police officer friends are thinking are they're scared too. <laughs> they're scared to call out the people who may not should be there, right? And the implications that has on them. So I think there is a deeper rooted issue um, and I think it goes deep and it's, it's going to be, there's going to have to be some reform and um, there's things there. I, I don't, I don't have a clear answer on it. I think my empathy is high for some good officers, which is helping me to be honest. So I'm just not enraged, but also I'll just, I think what I'll say to that is I don't know. I, I think there is a big issue and we need to do something about it. I do think more officers, the good officers need to speak up because it's almost like they're messing up your name. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, say something like be bold. Um, it's yes, yeah, probably going to hurt. And I don't know what's going to be the implications, but say something. And um, yeah, I, it's, you know, my whole life I've always even though police officers are to serve and protect, I've always kind of had this fear of because I'm black, I'm like, they can do anything to me and I I don't really have full control. And that is a scary thought. And the fact that my mindset is that way makes me think like, I don't know exactly what needs to happen with police, but something needs to happen. The fact that people will go around who aren't even doing anything wrong, but fear, of like, we celebrate I, every time I get pulled over by a cop, but they're nice. I text my friends. I'm like, my black friends, I'm like, 
y'all, I just got pulled over and either he let me go or he was super nice. They're like, what? No way. That's real life. <laughs> we actually talk about stuff like that. And so the fact that we expect to have like either an attitude or something like that or, you know, whatever, it escalate. Um, it's, it's bad. It's terrible. And, and that's, a, that's a part of the system. And that needs to be addressed. Um, I don't know the solution quite yet. I would have to, my mindset hasn't been on that as much, but there, something needs to happen and needs to be addressed. Agreed. And I appreciate your humble posture, uh, you know, not pretending to know it all and stuff like that. I was just interested in what your thoughts were about that. Um, so real quick, we'll fire off a couple more. What, who's your favorite person to follow right now on social media? <laughs> I would probably say Sean King. Okay. Um, yeah. And I think here's the reason why I'm more of a softy than people probably realize. Like I just, Super I'm soft. not say what? Super soft. I'm just not crazy conversation, uh, confrontational. I probably naturally show empathy more. And what I love about Sean King, he's just raw and he inspires me to be bold. Um, and so he's just sharing raw stuff, speaking his heart and his mind. And I appreciate him as a leader because he is, he is driving a lot of these campaigns around, I say campaigns, but a lot of this content around these black leaders or black people who have died and been murdered. And it is, he's one who's helping it spread all across the country and the world. So I just appreciate his leadership because he demands change. He's like, we're going to keep ringing this bell until something happens. And I just love that. And obviously People, I mean, in a month's time, he's gained 1.6 million followers in one month. Wow. And, and that's a lot because he is stepping up and leading, and people are seeing that he's demanding change. He's, like, asking, give me these officers' badges now. Yeah. And then people are searching for him and finding these badges. He's collected, in a week's time, 50,000 volunteers. Wow. I mean, just – leadership and change and so he's raw and being with him i would probably be like oh man i don't know if i was saying that way but at the same time i'm like i love it i love that he's standing and he's he's emboldening a lot of black people all across the country um what about top three books that you've ever read or maybe just that you think about right now um atomic habits is the first one um that i would say um God, so hard. As a man thinking comes to my mind because I just, one of the problems we're facing today, people don't think well and they don't know how to think humbly. And I, I think that book just kind of helps you process yourself. And honestly, it's helped me process myself to be able to love my neighbor as myself. Like, I don't think that's part of the problem today. People don't love their neighbors as themselves. Yeah. Um, so love as man thinking. And then the other book came to mind. Um, it's just because of this, the season we're in is talking to strangers um, uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. And it, it gives a really unique perspective that I feel like you're going through this journey on the whole book. And then you get to the, it starts with a story and it ends with the same story. And then it ties some pieces together. And he does it in a very unique, creative way that really makes you think. And the premise of the whole book is that we really don't know how to talk to strangers. Um. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So I would recommend that to anyone. Um, what's the best 
$100 purchase or less you've made in the last six months? Another whiteboard. <laughs> it's true. That's fair. <laughs> um, speaking of, if you could put anything on a billboard on the busiest street that you know of or you know, in any area that you can think of, what would it say? Grow or die. Grow or die. I love it. First thing you have in mind. All right, man. I love you to death. Uh, appreciate you being on the show. How can people find you? Uh, yeah, so Instagram I'm on a lot. Ike underscore you. Also Twitter's Ike underscore you. Even I don't use it a lot. LinkedIn, Ike Ubasaneke, U-B-A-S-I-N-E-K-E. Um, and those are the things I'll say right now. So, yeah. Gotcha. You have any last words for the audience? Um, yeah, just, I would just say lean into this. It's, it is humble. It is uncomfortable, especially if you're a white leader, but also I just want to say like black leaders is the same thing. There's some uncomfortability to it and it is, it is challenging. So I think all around, we're all learning and we're all working through this personally, professionally, um, all the above. So I'll just say, keep leaning in, keep finding a good fight. Um, you know, James Clear talks about 1% better. I think it's a lot to digest if you're taking in everything. But if you just think like, hey, how can I get just 1% better today around this? I think you'll see a lot more progress in a year than most people will see. That's really good. All right, thanks again for being on the show. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, bro.